And it's ready for you, Lorita. Okay, um, it is 5.35 and the meeting will begin. Um, I will be doing roll call. Um, Loretta Mellon? Present. Richard Harvey Jr.? Present. Lucia Angel? Present. B. Franks Walker? Present. Neha Banger and Eric Murphy will not join us tonight. Mark Smith? Here. Khalil Toki and Ali Yassin will not join us tonight. We have a quorum. Thank you. Okay. Can you um, scroll up, Brenda? Thank you so much. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. Um, I just have a couple of reminders, or actually one reminder and then some information to share. Uh, we're still in need of members, so please don't forget to... Um, tell people about it, you know, people you work with, neighbors, um, anyone that you think would be a good prospect for um, the co-applicant board. I was able to pass out an application to um, a dear friend of mine who is a drug counselor and an anger management uh, teacher, and he said he's very much interested, so I'm hoping that that works too. I think he'll be a great addition to um, this board. And um, I wanted to share a few of the, um, I would say, promising things for our homeless people. Um, this, back in May, May 19th, Oakland won an $11 million um, grant to turn the Coliseum Hotel into homeless housing. So that's very exciting. And uh, that should be underway soon. I don't know, Damon, has it started? Do you know anything about that? I don't have any more information about that now. Yeah, okay. And then um, Oakland and is one of 19 California um, communities getting grants from the state to help homeless families. So that's that's really good. You know, we you know that our totals are huge, so that's a, um, a real blessing. Um, Oakland, Livermore, and Santa Clara County are um, also winners of a grant that um, was used to help. Now, this particular grant is going to be used to help homeless families. So that's exciting. And then the most recent is um, the Wood Street Encampment. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but it's by the MacArthur Maze. There's approximately 300 um, homeless people living there. And in the past year, there's been like 90 fires. So it's, it's always, um, there's always something going on. And uh, there was one recently where it actually closed down the maze and one person died in an RV. Um, so Gavin Newsom uh, said that he's going to allocate $4.7 million just for this particular encampment for the city and Caltrans and everybody to get involved and to um, build some more tiny homes, to build um, possibly a navigation center and um, just really clean the whole area up. That's all fine and good, but they want it done by August 1st. 
therefore the bulldozers have already started. And when you talk about 300 people and no shelter has been built yet for them, it's really um, a very traumatic thing for them. Um, several of them are protesting. Several have been arrested already. It's not a it's not a very good situation. So keep that in your thoughts. Um, and if there's anyone that we can, if, if you feel like writing Governor Newsom to let him know what's happening, that would be great. But um, these people are, are just very traumatized by this. Some of them have been in this encampment for years and years and years. So that's all I have. Damon, do you have anything to add? Oh, nothing. Um, <laughs> Okay. I think we can we can go to the consent agenda and then Thank I can you. just give some brief comments for the medical director report. Perfect. Okay. Um, can I get a? Um, we're going to approve the minutes from the June 14th meeting and to adopt the resolution authorizing the remote teleconferencing meeting pursuant to AB 361. I make a motion that we accept the minutes from the last meeting. From the I second. Meeting. Thank you, B. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Just to, just to clarify that one, B, oh. were you making a motion to for both? Yeah. To, so to approve the minutes and to adopt the resolution? Oh, I make a motion that we approve the minutes and adopt the resolution. Thank you. And then was there a second? Did I hear? I second. Yes. Right. And then Brenda, would you mind taking a vote on that motion? Yes. I will call your name for the vote and please say yes or no. Loretta Mellon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr.? Yes. Lucia Angel? Yes. B. Franks Walker? Yes. Mark Smith? Yes. The motion passed. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, item C is the medical director report. Dr. Francis? I'll be really brief because I'm really excited to have um, our guest here from Huron and Mr. Jackson here to tell us about the uh, strategic plan. I just wanted to make you make sure you all were aware of a couple things that are happening um, in the homeless health center and ambulatory. So um, obviously the you know um, surge that's happening right now with COVID is affecting all of us and we have some areas of our clinics that have uh, a number of staff and providers out. Um, and, you know, that's definitely impacting our ability to get uh, patients in. We are um, shifting many fewer visits to uh, the telephone than we were in the past. We're, we're managing to accommodate uh, many patients in person, although we're still using the telehealth as a strategy. And I think something that's important for you all to know is that um, the state did recently uh, issue some guidance that says that we're going to be able to continue to bill telephone visits as full FQHC visits, which is, uh, oh. which is I think, really important for our patients. We have not had, you know, a really large uptake of video visits. So I think as we're continuing to deal with COVID and continuing to need to use that, you know, as, as a pillar of what we're doing um, in order to respond to, you know, the provider outages, it's really helpful to know that uh, the state, you know, is is recognizing that we're providing a lot of value in telephone encounters, and that uh, that those should be paid for the way that we pay for regular encounters, uh, given given the ongoing emergency, especially. 
Um, the other thing I just wanted to say, which I think we'll give a more full report on next time, but I wanted to make sure that you all were aware of is um, we, um, we, in addition to the two vacancies at the top of ambulatory right now, the associate chief medical officer who will replace the former chief administrative officer um, and the, the vice president role that um, Catherine Horner was in, um, we also um, have had three of our four practice managers for the wellness centers give notice. Um, so we have quite a, quite a lot of, um, leadership vacancies that we're covering, uh, right now or anticipating having to cover in the next few weeks. And, um, definitely, this is, you know, definitely impacting the system along with, um, some difficulty, you know, staffing with enough providers across the system. We've, uh, recently launched a task force to, to look at the, um, gap between the demand for primary care services in particular and our capacity to, to, um, to provide those primary care services. I think there are likely similar issues among, among several of the specialties, but the need is really acute mm -hmm. among primary care services. And so I just wanted to make you all aware of that. I think next month and next meeting, um, once the task force has been able to form and, you know, have some structure and, um, and, uh, and some work plans, uh, we'll, we'll bring that back more formally so you can hear about what we're doing in, in response to that. But certainly the COVID surge is, is kind of happening on top of a, a longer term, more challenging situ situation across ambulatory and particularly with, within primary care um, that's you know, affecting our, our homeless health center. I'm so happy to take any questions about that before handing it over to, uh, to uh, Mr. Jackson and the team from here on. Damon, are you taking any other roles? Burnout. 
Um, and so those, those unfortunately we can't anticipate are going to take quite a long time to turn around. And I think probably some, some, some deeper changes in, you know, in, in how we do our work in order for us to figure out how we can have a system that, you know, that attracts providers who want to stay for the longer term. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I, I think the prospects for the administrative side are different than they are for the clinical side in terms of in terms of coverage. Will any of these um, affect the improvement or the upgrades to Eastmont Wellness Center? Yes. Uh, so the last day for the Eastmont practice manager is uh, this Friday, and um, uh, he's really been the the person who's spearheading the work on the ground for the you know the expansions there. Um, but you know, as I said, we'll we'll have coverage uh, solutions in place. We'll report back to you on on what those are, and I think that will involve someone from the outside coming in to help us and steward that and try to keep that on on track. Um, but you know, certainly certainly for the short term, I mean, it, it definitely is a loss to that project to have um, to have oh, yeah. Gary Blake um, uh, going going on to another opportunity. Mm, that's true. Okay, thank you, Damon. Um, I have a follow-up question. Um, given uh, g given these um, changes, um, is that going to also affect uh, overall throughout the program of the, the hours in which uh, the number of hours in which um, uh, uh, clinicians can see patients? Um. Can you say, can you say more? I'm not I'm not sure I quite understand the question. Well, like for instance, at the the Eastmont um, the Eastmont uh, clinic, by the um, would your hours of operation change uh, due uh, due to short staff? No, no. There's no there's there's no change to the you know scope of services, the sites, or the hours of operation, or you know anything anything of that nature. I think it does change our overall capacity. What's the number of people we can see in those hours? You know, is definitely yeah. affected by the by the number of providers we have. But um, but no, I mean, I think if anything, we we've continued um, to expand. You know, things like pop up clinics on the weekends to help us. Um, help us do targeted improvement mm -hmm. efforts around things like cervical cancer screening. Um, so those, those types of efforts have continued uh, throughout the process. And I think clinicians continue to be excited about participating in those you know, types of events that, that actually expand our, our hours of availability to community members. Um, mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there'll be any effect on that, Mark. I, I was at Eastmont the other day and um, just looking around at some of the small changes that I saw and, you know, I can just envision a fantastic center, you know, getting underway and um, I saw more patients in uh, the area, in the primary care area and uh, I saw more people in the refugee clinic and I thought this is really wonderful, you know, this is such a needed clinic and needed opportunity so I'm excited about that yeah I'm, I'm hopeful as well yeah any other comments or questions for Damon okay if not we will go on to item D and we are very privileged to have um, Mr. Jackson here the CEO to talk about the AHS strategic plan report, and also some people from Huron. Wonderful. Um, may I share screen? Yes. 
Great. Okay. Yeah. So I've just uh, I've taken command of your of your screen there. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you able to see my screen? Yes. Fantastic. Is it in presentation mode or is it? Are you seeing the? It's in. It's, it's in, in full presentation. Mode? Awesome. Yeah. We're okay. seeing the next slide still. Yeah. Oh, you're, you are. Okay, so I need to switch that. The introduction, to, yeah. The, um, my, skills, I probably, how's that? Perfect. Great. Oh, boy. I, I feel very accomplished right now. My name is James Jackson. I'm the CEO for the Alameda Health System. I've had the pleasure of presenting to this body before, so thank you for allowing me to come back. And I am joined this evening, as noted, by um, my Huron colleagues, and that's um, Emily Graff and um, Leslie Grimmer. And they are two individuals who have been integral to this work. Um, they're here for moral support, but this is AHS's plan. So the Huron team has been very important in helping us build this, but you'll be hearing from me this evening because I am responsible for delivering this plan um, for the foreseeable future and I'm happy to share it with you this evening. This is a, just a kind of a summary and I think it's important to just acknowledge that, you know, while we have implemented a new five-year plan, our commitment, our mission statement has not changed. And you can see there in the first paragraph, our commitment to caring, healing, teaching, and serving all remains unwavering and that's followed immediately by good health is a right, it's not a privilege. And so we are very clear about that and that is woven throughout this plan, and you will see that as we move forward. And we do believe that um, our plan is committed to action on all levels, and that's with patients, with the organization, our community, as well as our society. And it's fundamentally based on equitable and quality service for all. And we appreciate and understand that we don't exist in a vacuum. And so being a part of this complex web that is the Alameda County milieu, um, we are um, very sensitive to that, and to that end, this plan was um, developed with input from both internal and external constituents to make sure that um, all voices were represented. So, um, this is a five-year plan, and it, we do believe that it galvanizes us towards foundational excellence, and our goal really is to transition towards the system-wide adoption of population-based approaches for integrated health and wellness care delivery. That's really important. Because, you know, this organization used to be really um, about providing hospital care, um, hospital-based care. And so when we became the Alameda County Medical Center and John George was brought in, and then shortly after that, the wellness centers were woven into it, and we kind of began the transformation. But I think today we're still primarily hospital-based, and our future really um, is in providing wellness care, population health care, and this transformation is noted in the, the end of the first paragraph. It has to be in alignment with the aspiration of our communities, our caregivers, and our strategic partners. And so um, another critical piece of this is our commitment to um, health equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so we have a, a very, um, I love the pledge that's in our, in our strategic plan. And I want to tell you, it was built by our trustees. Our trustees looked at our strategic plan as in the draft form and they wanted more in the way of um, mm -hmm. a definitive statement about our commitment to the social determinants of health, to health equity, diversity, and inclusion. 
And so the intro statement that we have in this document was actually designed and built by our, our board of trustees. And so, you know, the actions set forth here demonstrate our commitment to serving our patients, our employees, as well as our constituents here in this county, both now and in the future. But this plan is only the beginning. And I've been very uh, emphatic about the fact that this plan is iterative. It is going to change, you know, the bones of it, I think, are good and they're going to remain. But um, I'm here tonight not to get deliver this to you as a fait accompli, more so to engage you, to continue the dialogue, and to get your feedback so that we can make sure that this is a living document that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. This slide really is, um, I'm not going to go too much into it, but I'll leave it with you for your review. And it really just talks about the process that we went through. We engaged Huron uh, starting in November, and we um, partnered with them to build this plan. And uh, we conducted more than 50 interviews with internal as well as external consultants, or excuse me, constituents, and that includes board members, executive leadership, community, and county leaders, as well as on-site orientation and experience at our hospitals and, and clinics. Um, we also did a system-wide survey that all employees received to provide their feedback on the mission, vision, and values of the organization. And then we also um, did a diverse sample of patients providing feedback around our services and experiences. Something I'm really excited about, we had our, our patient services manager, um, Jan, and we also had um, Sambo, Sambo Live, from Interpreter Services, identify um, individuals that they've encountered in the course of their work in Interpreter Services and dealing with complaints and patient issues, mm -hmm. and had them um, help us identify folks who English is not their primary language, or people who weren't necessarily happy with the service they received, so that their input could help inform our strategic plan on a going forward basis. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the inclusiveness of our project. I appreciate that we weren't able to integrate everybody's, everybody's wishes, everything they wanted, but I do think this is an amalgamation of a lot of really good, valuable feedback, and I'm, I'm proud of the document that we have to offer. So getting to the good stuff, this is the visualization of our strategic plan and Patients are at the very center of everything that we do. They must be the focal point of all of our efforts. Around the patients, you can see the pillars of the organization, those being sustainability, quality care, staff and physician experience, and our community connection. What I think is really unique about our plan are the rings. Um, we call them our rotunda. And in the first ring, you have accountability, trust, and data, because those have to infuse and inform everything that we do. And then the outer ring, um, is health equity, diversity and inclusion, and staff and clinician contributions. Again, not put on the pillar because we didn't want it to be isolated from the balance of the work. Health equity and staff and clinician contributions must be integrated into everything that we do. Little bit busier slide, but it does a bit of a deeper dive. So again, I will I will leave this with you. I will forward a copy of this plan for you to to have and to you know really. Um, pull apart, but this slide I think is neat because it does talk about accountability, trust, data, our pillars, and, as well as the um, health equity, diversity, and inclusion, and the staff and clinician contributions. So this is really kind of a definition slide, if you will. So this is the deeper dive on the pillars. I will not read them to you, but I just want to acknowledge um, the tags that you see there on the left, and those are um, the heady tags. And so while health equity, diversity, and inclusion infuses everything
where we really wanted to make sure that Hetty was actively involved. What you should know about each of these um, action plans, action strategic actions, there is a senior leader who has responsibility for each of these. We're in the process of engaging a new chief strategy officer, and that person will have the responsibility for riding herd on the entirety of this project, but there will be a senior leader responsible for each of these actions and the expected outcomes. We will have a chart that tracks each of these so that we can make sure that we are moving along as we have anticipated at the outset of this plan over the five-year period. So um, again, I won't read these to you, but I'm happy to take um, any thoughts that you have as you have the opportunity to look at these. Um, moving to the community connection pillar, and again, you can see our actions with um, the heady tags. Um, very excited about the first one, establishing and engaging patient advisory committees to proactively identify opportunities to partner with the community and to improve the health outcomes in this community. And so establishing additional committees, because we have some, um, but we don't have them everywhere, and so we want that to be standard work. And then obviously generating system-wide initiatives, um, fostering trusted relationships, developing a community health care worker program. And so we want to establish that program. We believe that will um, help dramatically in terms of reduction of avoidable days, because if people have a good discharge plan, if they have a safe place to go and the tools and the medications they need, we believe that will um, result in a reduction of uh, avoidable days. Okay. Um, in terms of the staff and physician experience pillar, um, I hope that you've heard about our culture of safety survey. That is a survey that is administered by a third-party vendor called Beta. And um, we in history here at AHS haven't always had very good results on that or, or response rates because people felt like, one, didn't listen, and two, they were worried about retaliation. And so we've worked really hard to make sure that, one, folks get the feedback so we give them the benefit of seeing what the results were, and then we integrate them into helping us build our response plan to the items that they presented to us. And I think most importantly, we have a zero retaliation um, policy here. And if anybody is retaliated against, I've made it clear that I personally want to know. I will not tolerate retaliation for folks speaking their truth. And so um, very committed to the culture of safety and creating tangible um, progress by virtue of the feedback that our staff has given us. Also very proud about Leadership Academy. You see that, the third item there. Um, so that we can build and grow from within. Um, one of the criticisms of AHS, and I think it's a fair one, is that we um, hire a lot externally. And um, we talked a moment ago, Dr. Francis talked about those um, clinic or the wellness uh, center leaders who are leaving. Um, and that's the nature of this business. People do transition. I'm very excited about the prospect of looking at internal candidates. And to the extent that we can hire from within, I'd like mm. to do that. So that's um, very high on my list. I'm very mindful of that. And then at the bottom of the page, providing public recognition for staff successes. I think that, you know, we're quick to place blame and we don't spend enough time saying thank you to people and acknowledging when people are doing a fantastic job. So we've really tried to do more of the, you know, lift, uplifting people and acknowledging when they're doing wonderful work. To, I'm sorry? No, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. In regards to sustainability, and that's, frankly, that's our finances. And so the first item, maximizing reimbursement from payers. Um, I'm happy to report that um, we're, we're seeing good progress with our, with our BEST program, which is building excellent sustainability and trust. I'm also very pleased that our um, finance team recently established commercial contracts 
with all of the key payers in this community, which is something HS hasn't had in at least the past five years. I think it's longer than that. So a lot of people with commercial insurance could not, well, they could choose this, but they had to pay out-of-market, um, out-of-network fees. So by having contracts with the key providers in this community, it allows people with commercial insurance to choose to get their care with us. So we're very pleased about that. Um, our enhancing non-operational revenue by improving our metrics tied to government or supplemental funding, um, QIP, that's the future. Um, we really must be cognizant and responsive to QIP and to CalAIM so that we can optimize those payments. It used to come just by virtue of being a safety net provider. That was the old methodology. Now we have to earn it, and I think that's the right way to go because it ensures that we're providing quality care and they're and that's why data is important to us, because we want to be able to show our work. Um, obviously, meeting budgetary goals, investing in capital, um, and providing systems and meaningful data and actionable data and dashboards to support high-quality care. Um, this is an important slide because it talks about the financial modeling, which I will move to in the next slide, but this talks about how we built the financial model. So we took a baseline financial forecast from the adjusted calendar year of 2021, and then we began to overlay various elements onto it. And so you'll see what we call baseline plus best, which is again, building excellence, sustainability and trust. And then when you weave in the strategic action, that gets us to what we believe are the financial model for the out years of uh, one through five that are in the strategic plan. So moving to that, you can see that without the layers that I talked about, we would be going negative as soon as year two, about 3.2 negative in year two, and as much as 44 and a half million in year five. But when you factor in the various layers that I referred to, um, and so you've got the best initiatives here, and then you've got our strategic actions here. And so that translates, we believe, to positive financials, as you can see over the first four years. Year number six right now would be negative to almost $6 million, but the reality is there are a lot of factors and a lot of things will happen between year now and year five. And so we are optimistic that we will be able to make the appropriate changes so that we can guarantee a positive financial margin for the foreseeable future. And that is the end of my presentation. I will um, stay in presenter mode if you want me to go back to a particular slide so that we can look at it. Um, but I'm happy to take comments and questions. Mr. Jackson, how did um, you choose the patients that you um, interviewed? I know I heard you say um, you chose some patients because of concerns they had or complaints, but did you um, interview any positive patients as well? Well, Webin, thank you for asking. That's a, a fair uh, distinction. Um, I think that's Loretta. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Yes, Loretta. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a fair point. Um, we didn't actively seek people who necessarily had problems, but we let Jan, her name is Jan Roberts, we let Jan identify patients who she thought would be, you know, they're you know, people who have had experience with, with AHS, who we allowed her to help us identify folks who would have valuable input. So it wasn't necessarily people who had complaints, although some of them were people who had complaints, but that wasn't the deciding criteria. And the same with Sambo. Um, we wanted Sambo to identify people whose English was a second language so that we had the benefit of hearing from that perspective, uh, but it wasn't necessarily a negative experience with English as a second language, just their experience in general. And right. I, I would ask um, um, Leslie and Emily if you would like to add anything to how those patients were selected. 
think James, just the nature of um, patient relations, um, those were patients who had had um, something that needed to be engaged with, and, and so the thought was they had shared information in the past, they were um, willing to be open and vocal, and that we thought it was um, just a really great place to um, gather that feedback. Thank you, Leslie. Thank yeah. you for that question. That's a very good, um, a clarifying question, so thank you. Um, Great. Thank like you. To... Oh, I'm sorry, Loretta. No, go ahead, Mark. I'm done. Um, yeah, I had a question. In regards to the language barrier, um, could you possibly identify uh, which languages those were uh, in which there was a barrier that occurred? And um, what, if anything, uh, we can do um, to, um, to, hire, uh, to hire or um, at least engage other other uh, translate other translators um, to hospital setting for for uh, direct communication with patients or between doctors and patients. I I am sorry. I do not think I understood the second part of the question. In terms of the first part, I will I will ask Leslie if she knows what languages. I do not know which languages Sambo. Um, made available, but if you wouldn't mind, sir, if you could restate the second part of your question, I just I missed it. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was thinking, uh, um, is there? Or let me let me ask it a different, the second part, a different way. Um, um, do we have need of more uh, translators in general? I see. Okay, and, and you know that's it's a fair question. I I am not aware that we do. I think Sambo and her team do a fantastic job, and they are augmented by. A phone translation service, and so our, our primary, you know, our first line translation is person to person, and you know that's, um, you know, we have individuals who are located throughout the system, and Dr. Francis could probably elaborate more than I, but that's how we try to do it. But during COVID, obviously, we could not be as in person as we like, but there is a phone backup system that supplements them, and so I'm not aware that we need more translation services, but I would never say that you know we wouldn't be open to that. Um, so there's that. And I would ask Leslie, are you, Leslie, do you or Emily know which languages um, we had feedback from in building the survey? Or excuse me, the strategic plan? James, I don't have that at, at the tip of my fingers. We can certainly get it. I will say, though, that there were a number of languages that um, are verbal only, where there's not yeah. a written language. And so those conver those were actually conversations um, and not even a written survey. So I know Sambo um, gathered um, groups, like patient groups within um, those um, those um, ethnic communities and actually had a discussion with them around um, their um, their thoughts about the system. Thank you, Leslie. I can certainly get the, that list of uh, those languages if that would be helpful. If you would, please. It's a, it's a fair question and something we should be able to readily express. And so, Leslie, if you wouldn't mind um, gathering that, that'd be great. So thank you for asking that question, sir. Mm -hmm. um, when I used to, um, prior to COVID, um, we used to have um, a patient relations group for K-7. And um, we had three different groups. We had the Hispanic, we had the Mien, and then we had the English. And each of them would meet separately. And then every three months, we'd all get together. So we had all, you know, three groups together. And there was a lot of information that came out of those um, groups. I mean, valuable information, um, especially the Mien group, because they do not have a written language. Everything.
rely on is verbal or with pictures. And so I know that um, we were able to um, advise or suggest that more pictures were put up around the hospital or around the clinics to show them, you know, exactly which way to go. And I I hope that we can go back to having those groups because they were so valuable. Um, I know I was was involved about five years with, with the groups and they were just so good. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I, I'm going back to the slides because um, that is, uh, I believe it's here, yes, on the top of this page, establishing additional patient advisory committee. So I think that's kind of what you were alluding to. And, you know, that's just such important feedback because we we live this every day. We're in these buildings, and I think we've become somewhat um, um, desensitized to, mm-hmm. and, and it makes sense because we live it. And so it's so right. important when people come here, they're in distress. They are probably having one of the worst days of their life, um, mm-hmm. and um, they don't. And healthcare can be daunting, and so really getting their feedback so that we can um, be sensitive and be culturally humble, um, I think, is really the key to our being successful. So thank you, Loretta, for saying that, and that's sure. exactly what we intend to do. Patient-centered all the way. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you. Certainly. Oh, one more thing. Did you say that we're starting to yeah, stand up? Are we I apologize. To... I'll stop Are sharing we... so we can see each other. Okay. Are we starting to take, uh, did you say, more insurances? So, for example, um, maybe we take Blue Cross now and you didn't before. Is that what you were referring to? Exactly right. So there was That's a decision so made. Good. I apologize. Say again. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's really, really wonderful. There was a decision made some years ago because, and logically it made sense, but it wasn't great for patients. Um, we were getting paid less than what it cost us to provide the care by some of these commercial payers. And so you don't make that up on volume when you're getting paid less than what it costs to do the care. So our CFO at the time literally said, we'll just cancel because then they have to pay full freight. Mm-hmm. And so it was good for the bottom line, but it really made AHS an unwelcoming place for people who had insurance. And so, um, you know, we rightly heard a lot from our patients and from our clinicians who said, you are making it inhospitable for people with insurance to come here. And so, you know, it was a long time coming, but, you know, kudos to Kim Aranda, our chief financial officer and our team for getting these contracts done so that people can choose us and they will not have to pay out of network. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, thank you. Well, folks, I, this isn't your only bite at the apple. I'm really appreciative for this time to share with you. I'm I think one of our members of the has had her hand up for a while, and I, he just hasn't been recognized. Hi. I'm sorry. I, I missed that. Please. No worries. Um, hi. Thank you so much for presenting. This is really great. Um, I just had a question around, um, you know, I think as we said, strategic goals. I wanted to learn a little bit more about what the kind of system of accountability that we put in place to, you know, make sure that we're progressing, um, you know, um, over the next five years or whatever that timeline looks like and kind of who's ultimately accountable, right, that we're meeting those goals. Um, Are there opportunities for us to get updates on the progress um, over time? Um, And then specifically for the health equity piece, I think that's something that, you know, we're super interested in, in hearing about. Um, is there a, like a point person or someone 
um, designated to kind of lead that work uh, across Alameda Health System or how is that work being? Um, I know you said, you know, the executives have some responsibility over that, but I wondered if there was, you know, um, an, a person who was ultimately accountable for that work um, moving forward. Yes. So, me. Um, honestly, I, I, I am responsible for the implementation and the successful delivery of this plan. Um, I also mentioned that we are in the process of hiring a chief strategy officer, and so they will have kind of operationally, they will be responsible for tracking. Um, they will have you know, influential authority, but they won't have direct line authority. The reality is that at the end of the day, everybody in the organization reports to me. And so I am the accountable executive, but there will be those responsible leaders for the various aspects of the work. I'm counting on our chief strategy officer who we will engage to track it. And so you asked about, will there be updates? And there absolutely will. We will have tracking mechanisms that we will be presenting in different forms. I'd love to come back here and present. We have the weekly desktop chat. Our intention is to provide updates via that form. Also our department leaders meetings. I'll be doing updates at our board of trustees meetings. And so I think that there will be a lot of forums where our updates will be shared. But the operational leader for this will be the chief strategy officer, the accountable executive responsible will be me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is Mark. Um, uh, the account of, uh, the person who will be accountable for this, um, are, are, are they in the pipeline already or? So the, the chief strategy officer, they, yes. we have that job. It was posted. We've received the applicants. We're in the process now of vetting the, the applicants that we've received, and my hope is to have somebody identified and on board uh, next month. Oh, wow. That's great. I, I agree. Thank you. It's equally or if not even more so important that the clinicians know that they are the first contact with the people. They are um, so the equity and the racism and all that, you know, comes through them, you know, whether um, the patients listen to properly or taken care of properly. Um, so, I, I, you know, I hope that clinicians are constantly being reminded of that because I know they get so busy with their technical stuff that sometimes you forget, and that's understandable. But I think it's so important that they don't. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Um, I, I get my health care at the Alameda Health System. My family does. My sister was recently a patient here, and the gentleman who was her physician didn't know me, which I was happy about. And so I watched when he came in the room, and this clinician came in. He, you know, he did his hand washing, which was great. He came to talk to my sister, and he actually sat down next to the bed. He, yeah. you know, got eye level with my sister, and he, you know, talked to her. He asked her if it was okay to share what was going on with her family, which was myself and my other sister. And he was really a, a textbook study of how you interact with somebody and you break down the barriers between clinicians. He never typed while he was talking to her. He looked at her, wow. spoke to her, and then he turned to the computer. But he said, I'm going to enter some data. And he did oh, it, and he came awesome. back to her. So really, just uh, I can't say enough about that clinician. And so, and I was very pleased that he didn't know my role because I didn't want him to be doing it for me. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what we want. We want mm -hmm. present clinicians. We want culturally humble clinicians who um, do not presume to know the background, the cultural background, and they're open to learning um, the history and why these people have made the decisions they've made. And so I appreciate your comment. 
I live your comment, and I certainly am looking for that in our clinicians. I know um, I'm, you know, I'm looking at Dr. Francis, but I believe that that's what he's looking for in providers as well. Thank you. Certainly, thank you, Miss Angel. Your hand is up again. Is there? Did you have another question? Oh no, sorry. I think I didn't put it down. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, I missed you once. I didn't want to miss you again. Well, folks, thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your involvement in listening to this process, and I, I welcome the opportunity to come back and provide updates to you. Thank you so much. We are um, very grateful that you came to share this with us. Indeed. It's a pleasure. All right. Have a great evening. Thank you. You too. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so now we're um, on letter E, which is our program report discussion. Dr. Francis? Great, so just a couple things I want to highlight here as we're getting into the new um, kind of routine of, of this report, um, and Heather usually usually gives it, but um, you know, in the first area we always talk about uh, compliance requirements, and, and we're doing fine there. We don't have any any new findings or anything in our continuous monitoring program with the county. We have um, two meetings coming up to look at our uh, compliance with, excuse me, fiscal requirements and clinical requirements um, in September and November of this year. So we'll give you guys some report back on that when those happen. Um, and then um, in the second area we have, we're reporting on utilization um, every month. So Brenda, you can scroll down. Um, and um, and experience, I believe, every single month. So you can see these are our experience measures, which you guys are seeing every every single month, and they're not changing, you know, very much. We do have a general gradual trend upward in the recommend the practice rating for patient experience, but we're still below the overall overall goal at, at all of the clinics. Um, but we just want to, you know, get you all used to kind of seeing some of this information on a really routine basis. So, Brenda, if you scroll down um, a couple more slides. One more. Yeah, this is, um, the, go back, just kind of a number to have in our minds of, um, we serve about 3,600 unduplicated patients currently. Over the last 12 months, we've seen about 3,600 different people experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity in our system, which is about what it's been. This is not a, a big change, but I think gives you all a sense of this is about the size of the homeless health center. And you, you can monitor kind of the fluctuations in this number over time. You can see the combination of location and services where we see the largest number of, of people experiencing homelessness is at Highland in our specialty clinics. So on K7 at Highland, you know, we're really the home base for the specialty for most of the safety net system. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I think for some of my individual patients, I'm excited. I don't have to let go of them when they get private insurance, but I, yeah. I will say that um, it is really important um, that we retain a really strong focus on people experiencing homelessness and on supplemental dollars and on public systems and structures, um, even as we, you know, contract with a variety of providers. Um, and I think one of the things we'll want to watch is, is this number going down over time versus going up over time when we know, you know, there's really over 9,000 people who are homeless and probably okay. over 20 to 30,000 people actually who meet the criteria for HUD homelessness at any given moment. We want to make sure we're, we continue to serve, you know, a large number of those patients. So this is a number that you guys will see every month and, and can kind of use to gauge like 
what's the overall size of the homeless health center? Um, then if you scroll down um, a bit more, we've added some quality metrics this month. So these are, you know, broken down in detail. Heather's gone over these, I think, in some detail at past meetings. So I'm not going to do it again today, but it's just information that you all will have every single time you review these reports that gives you a sense of the trends. But, Brenda, if you can scroll down to the quality information, which is new and the first time that we're presenting it. Um, so there, we can stop there. So one of the um, things that we're going to present on a quarterly basis is just reviewing some of our selected quality measures. So I think um, you all might remember that when we presented an overview of our quality system during the strategic planning process, we looked at something like 50 or 60 different measures um, that are tracked across our system. Um, and so what we decided to do to try to make this more meaningful for you all, rather than try to review 50 or 60 measures, you know, all at once, is to, is to pick a few measures that are representative of areas that we're focused on and to, and to look at those trends over time for those measures. So this, these first two are um, really focused on behavioral health, and, and they're pretty important measures for looking at how we're doing with our behavioral health care. You can see the first one is um, our 30-day follow-up um, after someone comes to the emergency room for um, alcohol or drug use. So um, you can see we're, we're not doing well really with, you know, homeless or non-homeless patients in this category. And for a time, we're actually doing slightly better among people experiencing homelessness than among people who weren't experiencing homelessness. But we're only really at about 20%. And really, you know, for most folks who come to the ER with a substance use issue that's that's an emergency, you know, we really would like to be seeing pretty much everyone, you know, within a month of, of coming into the ER. So this, you know, kind of underscores our idea of focusing on drop-in services in part of our strategic plan to, to help get that, that number up. And then the second, um, the second quality metric in this category is um, the response to treatment for people who are depressed who are 18 and over. Um, so here you can see, um, or I, I actually am having trouble even squinting and seeing the numbers again. Uh, the left side changes every time. We're at about 30% um, responding to treatment, meaning not necessarily all the way better, but at least somewhat better six months after they've started getting treatment for depression um, for non-homeless folks, and we're, we're hovering around 20% for people experiencing homelessness. So this was an area that in that first review during the strategic planning process we knew you know, we're not doing well, among, doing as well among people experiencing homelessness as we are uh, among other populations. And we're also, you know, frankly, not doing as well as we'd like among, among other populations as a whole. So I'll just pause there and take any questions on these behavioral health quality measures that you guys have. Who does the follow-up, Damon? So, for example, the emergency room does a nurse from there follow up or does somebody from primary care follow up? Yeah, this measure, uh, I believe the definition is based on do they actually get into a primary care clinic? So the follow up means that they're actually seen in clinic after they're seen in the emergency department. It's not just a telephone follow up or, or you know, some other kind of follow up. It's, it's that you have a follow up visit after you've been seen in the emergency room. So is there somebody to call them to remind them of that visit and to encourage them to come to that visit? Our, you know, standard, our, our standard practice, if a visit is scheduled, would be to have reminder text messages and reminder and or reminder calls, mm -hmm. um, you know, for, for patients to come in. Um, I think there are, there are challenges along the entire spectrum of this. You know, can someone get an appointment scheduled? 
by 30 days, can they right. do that in the ER or is that done after they leave the ER? Then if, even if yeah. they have an appointment, are they getting reminded to follow up? So I think the challenges with this number are really across the spectrum. And I think the Bridge Clinic is our best example of, you know, reducing those barriers by saying, show up anytime, your appointment is anytime right. you want it to be, right, at, yeah. at, this other, at this other location. I think underscores, especially among people experiencing homelessness, what we think is, you know, the, the kind of lowest barrier strategy that we should be using for that. Right, right. Yeah, because they still need their handheld, you know. It's um, it's just like putting somebody in, into a new housing. If you don't have someone help them to teach them how to grocery shop and to do all the things that you do in a home, they're lost. They don't know how to do that, you know. Yeah, I think it's some combination of, you know, of, of additional support. But I think it's also, I think we, we really need to kind of embrace the idea of reducing barriers, like, we shouldn't create systems that are so complicated that they're not usable by, you know, by someone without a master's degree, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, there's some degree of, of people needing extra support, but there's some degree of, like, the ridiculous complexity of our system in the context of people's lives where they, where they have many, many competing priorities. You know, I, had, I have a, a patient who's um, housing insecure who I just talked to on the phone today. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I said, hey, are you uh, are you taking your medicine? And he said, that's, you know, that's just not what I'm into right now. I'm just not, right? I'm worried about my housing situation, you know, and I was like, well, is there anything I can do? He said, no, there's nothing you can do. So I said, can I call you back in four weeks? Yeah, you can call me back in four weeks. All right, I'll talk to you in four weeks. You know, I think he has so many different competing priorities. Yeah. It's beyond the additional support. It's really, we need to end homelessness. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> we need to change our systems so that so that we don't so that they don't require extra support just to navigate them. At the, at the same yeah. at the same time as we're providing extra support, I think part of this is also doing things like drop in, doing things like just making our systems more accessible. Yeah. Prior to COVID, we had the health advocates that would work with the patients in um, well any clinic, but in K six especially to get them set up on food stamps and get them set up on, you know, any kind of um, service that they needed. They were like their own little personal navigation center. Now, since um, COVID, they're not back. And these were students that volunteered to do this. So they weren't paid for it. They were, it was a, a volunteer position. Um, are we ever going to go back to that? I mean, I think that that navigation part is so important because if we treat them for their health issues, once again, home is part of being healthy, you know. And so how do we know that there's a follow-up on with this patient to um, inquire about housing or to put them on a list or whatever the case is? Maybe I'll come back to that. I want to stick with the quality measures, and then can I can I come back to that yeah, question sure. at the end? Because um, I could definitely you know fill you in on where we're at with health advocates now, and and sort of that that function in the area. Um, but are there any other questions from anyone else around just the behavioral health quality measures? Okay, great. We can move Brenda to the next couple measures, which are screening measures. Um, so here's breast cancer screening and colorectal cancer screening. Um, so, you know, these are things that represent 
um, things that we do in clinic for healthy people to keep them healthy. It's not necessarily like we're trying to treat an illness, right, all the time. Like sometimes what we're doing is trying to make sure that we detect something before someone else even knows that it's going, before the patient even knows it's going on, and then prevent, you know, prevent something from developing. And so you can see that in these screening areas, um, we have, um, I think, some of our largest disparities between people who are not homeless and people who are homeless. So this is different from the situation when we reviewed these measures during our strategic planning process. And a lot of these started to diverge again, and we started to see these disparities, um, I think, as we were coming out of the pandemic and we started doing more in-person visits again. So I, I, my best guess as to what was sort of driving the fact that these disparities were closed was that we weren't doing a lot of screening tests for anyone during the COVID pandemic because people weren't coming in for a lot of in-person care. So they couldn't get a mammogram, which is what breast cancer screening primarily is, you know, constitutes. And they couldn't get a fecal occult blood test, you know, a stool sample um, that you that you self-collect and send in by the mail um, because they couldn't pick up the stool sample in person. And there's a lot of challenges actually doing, doing that entirely through the mail. But now that we've returned to to you know more in-person visits, those disparities have widened again, and we're seeing how much harder it is to complete some of these activities for people experiencing homelessness versus uh, for people who aren't experiencing homelessness. And so you can see about a uh, 10% difference, um, I think, in the um, breast cancer screening, and then something approaching a 15% difference um, in uh, in colorectal scanning, colorectal cancer screening. Uh, you know, 
retain our services, but live kind of in the far reaches of the county. And, um, and so we're trying to figure out, can we do lab ordering in some other way? But I think one of the issues of starting to establish exceptions like that, especially when you already have shortages in the system, is then really focusing on the, the you know, the, the big bang for your buck things we can do, like drop-in services gets harder because a lot of us are focusing on managing, you know, individual exceptions for a lot of patients. And so I think that's, you know, that's some of my concerns about, um, about the strategies, that, you know, that we have to say, like, oh, we're going to be able to accept all payers. You know, that takes a lot of energy and attention to adapt your contracting mechanisms and your reporting mechanisms to work with a large number of payers when you can see, you know, some of the, you know, large populations of people were, you know, kind of uniquely accountable for caring for, we still don't have some of those basic systems in place. Um, people experiencing homelessness, you know, other, other people, other marginalized populations. All right, so um, I think the, you guys have a picture kind of of screening there. Um, yeah, moving to the, this is kind of our disease control measures. Um, and so here you can see, you know, disparities as well, but much narrower. Um, and I think this is the general kind of pattern for mo mo most of these measures. Again, we're only looking at a subset that we can, you know, kind of come to understand better over time. Um, so this is uh, poor control of diabetes is the first one. And, th and this one, uh, as opposed to all the others, lower is better. So you can see where we have fewer people with poor control who are not homeless than we do people who are homeless. Um, you know, between um, 30, around 30% and around 40%, I think. And then um, for controlling high blood pressure, um, we're, we're up toward about 60% uh, for both people experiencing homelessness and people who are not homeless. And I think um, that, that reflects, you know, I think what I've seen in clinic that when we get people into clinic, once you're in the system and you're, you know, you're someone that we're counting in these numbers, we do a pretty good job actually taking, taking care of you when it comes to the basics of like giving medicine, making sure you're getting the medicines you're due, you're due to receive. I think with issues like diabetes, um, you know, you, you may have more complex and involved things like how can you provide yourself insulin, right? There, there may be some self-management support that's involved with things like colorectal screening and, and cancer screening. You may have a lot of transportation issues involved. And so I think the more involved the care is generally across these measures, the, the wider the disparity is between people who are, who are um, homeless and people who are not homeless um, in, you know, in what we see in the, in the outcomes. Um, the other couple summaries I would I would give is that um, we haven't included any pediatrics measures because we actually see a very small number of homeless children, even though there are a lot of homeless children in Alameda County, um, especially by the by the broader HRSA criteria. It isn't clear to me if this is because um, there is some evidence that parents don't disclose, um, you know, health related social needs, including including housing difficulties. Um, you know, because they, they fear that the system might, you know, think them less capable as parents and might, might do something um, that they don't want to do or might take away their agency, I think. Um, and so it's possible that some of this is, is just that we don't actually 
um, we're not capturing, you know, by by the way we're asking um, the full numbers of, of children experiencing homelessness. It's also possible that we're just we're disproportionately not serving children experiencing homelessness in our system. And I think it isn't really clear to me. Um, I have started talking to some of the pediatricians about attending the Alameda County Office of Education quarterly homeless meetings. So we're going to have some attendance there from our pediatricians. And yeah. um, I think we'll start, you know, figuring out, you know, what's what's going on with those numbers uh, gradually over time with, with, the, with the support of our pediatricians. We definitely have some pediatricians that are heavily involved in, you know, things like um, adverse childhood events and and working with marginalized, you know, populations of youth, foster youth, for example. Okay. So we, we have a lot of, you know, experts in that area, a lot of dedicated pediatricians, but we don't have it showing up a lot in the data. So we want to we wanna take some time to get to the bottom of that. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, there are, there are pretty consistent disparities now that we're out of the post-COVID era across a range of different types of measures, right? These screening measures, the disease measures, the behavioral health measures, um, but they're still relatively small in comparison to the problem of just not having enough people experiencing homelessness getting care, who are able to get care at all. Um, so I think, you know, for us, I think we have to think about, you know, is our strategic plan as a homeless health center, not the overall strategic plan for Malamine Health System, but, you know, for, for us as a co-applicant board, if we focus on the things that we've outlined there, drop-in availability, um, you know, sustainability of services and follow-up, will that drive both improvements in access and getting more homeless, you know, patients into the system and will it drive quality measures? And I think, I think the answer is yes. I think that, you know, we'll, for example, by supporting the bridge clinic as we're doing around drop-in services, we're going to see better numbers on that, you know, follow-up for, um, for alcohol or substance use. Um, I think by, as you were talking, as you were alluding to, Loretta, I think by focusing on follow-up and in particular follow-up with regard to housing um, with, um, you know, the complex care management team and other of our internal partners, I think we are going to see people who are better able to manage their diabetes because they're in a more stable living situation. And so I do, I do think those are the same places to focus. I don't think that the emergence of disparities that has happened since we last reviewed these data really should change our approach to the strategy. Um, but, uh, you know, but of course we, we present this, you know, for you all to kind of think about and, and present other perspectives back to us to help us think about it in different ways. And our strategy, just, you know, just like the overall system strategy and the way that Mr. Jackson presented it, our strategy is also subject to be reviewed and changed, you know, depending upon what we see in, in these numbers and, and other numbers. I have a question. Um, these measures are very good and it keeps us informed as to how people are being treated and what is happening and the progress that is being made. But I'd like to know, do we have any designated funds specifically for the homeless uh, for monkeypox? I know money is going to be designated. Will we have money? Uh, at this point in time, we do not, as Alameda Health System, have any funding that I'm aware of that's designated for, for monkeypox. I know Lucy Kasdan is on the phone um, and, and may have some information with regard to the county. Um, she's the director of the um, Healthcare for the Homeless program in, in Alameda County and Healthcare Services Agency. Lucy, I don't know if you're uh, multitasking or if you're on. And hi, no. To... Oh, hi. 
Good evening. Thanks for having me here tonight. Um, I have not heard anything uh, about uh, monkeypox funding uh, specifically for homeless um, or otherwise, but if I do, I will definitely pass it on to Dr. Francis to make sure that that information is shared with you. Okay, thank you. And B, we can we can make sure that we talk about monkeypox at a future meeting. We we've had, um, as far as I was aware, the last numbers I saw six cases overall um, at Alameda Health System. Um, the majority of those have been in the clinic where I practice, the adult immunology clinic. Um, I'm not aware that any of them are people experiencing homelessness yet. But uh, as you are, I'm actually really really concerned that um, that we will end up with. Uh, uh, an epidemic that's disproportionately affecting that population of folks, as it's already clear, it's disproportionately yeah. affecting um, the LGBT community and, and you know people living yeah. with HIV. Yeah. Um, so I think it's something we need to we definitely need to keep our eye on, and so we'll we'll report back on just what's happening with monkeypox, so that you you can kind of stay apprised of that. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, oh go ahead, Loretta. Oh, sorry. Hi, Mark. It's Lucy. I just just gonna add. Oh, yeah, oh, in terms of monkeypox specifically with uh, the homeless population, I am only aware there have been two suspected cases, um, but neither one. So I'm not aware of any confirmed cases among the homeless. We are, of course, looking at that closely, and also um, want to be able to provide as needed the same uh, isolation or quarantine space um, as we have done during with COVID um, to make sure that we kind of prevent larger spread in particular in like, you know, congregate settings like shelters. So we are looking at that closely and I'll make sure to um, have that report back to Damon and updates. Thank you. And what about the vaccine? You know, are, are, we, are we giving that out or will we get some or how's that working? We have a limited amount of vaccine in the county. I'm not sure what the amount is overall. The um, urgent care at Highland is, uh, I think, one of the main locations that's providing the vaccine. I'm not sure if it's the sole one, um, but it is all accessed through the county. So oh. you, you actually have to call the county to be approved to receive the vaccine, and then it's delivered at urgent care. So we, you know, we've had people we want to just send upstairs but they actually have to go through the county process before they can come back to our own urgent care to get the vaccine. So I think that's something else we can update you on. Like, what are the what are the processes we're, we're using? Um, and I might even invite Dr. Lai, who's my medical director at AIC, to come present, because she's really become our, our local expert on, on everything monkeypox. Um, I, I know we're gonna raise this, uh, this is Mark. Um, I know we're gonna raise this issue um, again, um, in a future um, session. Um, but one of the things um, I, I was going to mention the monkeypox earlier, um, but um, I did want to. Now that it's been mentioned, uh, one of my concerns, and um, I don't know, Damon, you can answer this, but um, is there? Um, I, I know there's a monkeypox vaccine. Um, however, um, I'm just wondering whether or not. Um, the effect of such a vaccine would have um, any impact on the vaccines already taken by individuals uh, um, who have suffered from COVID. I, I'm not aware of any any scientific reports about that yet. Um, but certainly can can look into it and make it part of the you know report back when we when we come back and talk about monkeypox. That would be great. 
So um, I'm happy to conclude the quality presentation there, and then I can come back to Loretta's question about the, the health advocates, um, unless there's anything else that anyone wanted to, to raise with regard to quality. Certainly, you know, now or via email, your suggestions. This is the first time we've reported quality data in this way. You know, if you have thoughts about, and you don't, you don't, you can share them now, but you can also share them in the future about, well, I want to see more metrics. I want to see them sliced and diced in different ways. I think my focus, you know, for this presentation was really to try to just make it digestible, but this can evolve as, uh, as it needs to, to be, to be useful for you all as, as a board. back to Loretta's question about the health advocates, I think just to um, level set there, it's a group of both volunteers, has been a group of both volunteers and hired community health workers oh. Oh, who, yeah. um, who um, both work in both inpatient and outpatient settings at Alameda Health System to respond to health-related social needs like food, housing, transportation needs, you know, other types of support needs, um, legal issues, et cetera. I was started probably uh, almost 10 years ago, I think eight, nine years ago. Um, yeah. And formerly um, there were tables um, on site with that were, you know, staffed by people and you could have a warm handoff as a clinician. Like if you had a patient who said, you know, I have housing, a housing problem, I need help. You could walk with the patient at the end of the visit out to the table and talk to the health advocates about, um, the housing issue, and then they, you know, would do a further assessment and, and help um, uh, do their best to help the patient with the with the housing issue, or you know, applying for public benefits or something like that. So, in prior to the pandemic, actually, um, most of that work became telephonic, um, and so a lot of the in-person availability went away. The health advocates did a lot more work on the inpatient setting than the outpatient setting. And then over the pandemic, that trend has kind of continued. So we do still have the health advocates in, in operation. They were in operation throughout the entire pandemic. Um, it's been primarily telephonic, though. We haven't had the ability to do in-person warm handoffs. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know the, 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 the director of the health advocates and the supervisor of the director of the health advocates have both um, turned over recently. So... Um, Susan um, is retiring. She's the she's kind of the the executive leader, and then the direct day to day manager was Juan Hurtado. He took a job at UCSF, and so Marco's now in Juan's job. And I don't know if anyone has taken Susan's job. So there's been some turnover in the health advocates, and I think you know we'll see what's going on. But I think in connection with the function overall that you were talking about, Loretta, like is there someone who can follow up on those kinds of issues in clinic? I think that's a real priority of Cal AIM and a real priority of the state that they're putting funding behind and connecting to the idea of community health workers being being available either in the clinic or in community-based organizations that we might work with. And there's a, there's a group internally that includes Lily McRae, who you all have met, um, who leads our complex care management function, Karen Wise, who you all have met, who leads our behavioral health work in Alameda uh, in, the, in the ambulatory system as well as some other folks across the system, they're, they're coming together to look at our strategy around community health workers in alignment with CalAIM. Um, so that, you know, as Heather and I are hopefully able to return more of our attention to the Homeless Health Center, um, I think, uh, you know, that third strategic goal of 
following up in particular on housing needs and primary care needs and making sure we, we you know, we're closing the loop as much as possible on assistance we're providing. I think that's going to be really connected to that CalAIM work. And we are, you know, I am present at the CalAIM meeting we have every three weeks. We're involved in shaping the strategy for CalAIM um, really, really closely, even right now. But I expect, you know, as we as we are not in the ambulatory wide roles, um, we'll be able to spend even more time on that on that area going forward. Do you ever foresee someone being on the health fan that would um, be like a navigator of services? outside of the health part, like getting someone signed up for whatever they need. We do have two community health workers um, who are on the van who do do some of that work. They usually do it in a one-time way because, because the design of the service is as an urgent care service. Mm -hmm. So their focus is really following up in primary care because they also have they actually have special access to our scheduling systems, right? They can they can help people follow up in primary care. But um, I think their ability to do that with external resources is really limited by the amount of contact they have with the patients. Um, so I think, you know, we are thinking a lot about that, you know, in collaboration with Healthcare for the Homeless. Should that program be designed in a different way so that the community health workers we do have are able to do that? I think yeah. as you all heard last time, we've, we've hired Lafayette Bickham as our um, assistant practice manager to focus on mobile health. And he's, you know, been a community health worker both on the mobile van and, you know, at the adult immunology clinic and is really one of our more experienced community health workers in the system who has deep relationships with a lot of our community mm -hmm. partners that, that address those kinds of health-related social needs. So I, I'm, I would be surprised if, you know, Lafayette didn't, take us more in that direction over time, um, you know, via his leader, leadership in that new role. Okay, that's good. Great, I think we went far afield. Alex probably wouldn't have let us do that, Kayla. <laughs> I think it, I mean, this is the program report. So I think we can arguably put it in there. I agree too. Yeah, I think Let's it's a good conversation. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We love Alex and Mission. <laughs> so I think we can go back to the agenda and and. Mm -hmm. um, hey, um, do we have any public comments tonight? I just want to say thanks to Lucy for joining. I don't know if she has anything else she wants to say, but this is the time yes. where you can get the microphone if you want, Lucy. We're really glad to have you. And I'm really happy to be here. It's just great to hear the questions and the energy, and I just think that there's so much opportunity um, for collaboration and for us to really hear from you and really lift, um, yeah, lift up all the questions and um and continue to work together to improve the care for homeless patients. So thank you all. I know it's a lot of work doing this, so I really appreciate it. I'm just grateful to be here listening in the background. Thank you for coming. Okay. Okay, is there anything else? Does, does anyone have a question or a statement they want to make before we close? 
Okay. Well, the time is uh, 6.56, and um, we are adjourned. Good night, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Let's see if I can put this in.